what I love best about your story is that someone discerned that you had a gift of discernment and they came up and told you. <laughs> That's awesome. If you have a Bible or a device that you use, turn to 1 Corinthians 12. We'll put it up on the screen as well if you don't have a device or a Bible. Um, as we're going to continue working through this series on the spiritual gifts. Today I think it's going to be really helpful for you. And while you're turning there to 1 Corinthians 12, I'm a big reader, and one of my favorite topics of reading, favorite, I guess, kinds of reading, is anything that I can get my hands on dealing with leadership. Uh, how leaders are made, how to build leaders, how to pipeline leaders and get them from A to B. I love looking at how leaders um, deal with struggle or discouragement or challenges. I like seeing how they replicate and make more leaders. Anything there is to do with leadership. I mean, it's one of the biggest shelves in my library is anything having to do with leaders. And here's a truism that you will find, especially with organizational or entrepreneurial leadership. And that is that leaders, when they begin something new, brand new endeavor, they typically have a really high threshold for pain, a real high tolerance for risk and sacrifice. Right? A lot of risk, a lot of sacrifice, they're okay with it. But as the endeavor starts to roll on and continue and challenges keep coming and the pressure points don't get any easier, then a lot of times these same leaders will inadvertently slide towards self-protection. They will build routines to find safety and security. And then if you do that long enough, you live a safe and secure life away from risk and away from pain and away from sacrifice, it builds what we could just easily call a boring life. You just become bored. What becomes, or what started, I guess, as an adventure just got scary because of all the pain and all the challenges. And then you have a, a retreat into safety. And then you just have boredom. And you've seen this in real time. You've actually witnessed this. You ever walk into a restaurant that it is apparently settled? It is just settled. You walk in and it, it's been around for 20 years and it looks like it's been around for 20 years. They stop putting forth the efforts to make it look good, to make it look new. Innovation is not in their vocabulary. The menu's the same. Their supply chain is the same. Everything's the same, right? And you walk in, you just kind of feel like, golly, they're not taking any risks. It's just, it just kind of feels predictable, boring even, right? This is what you need to know about that restaurant. It didn't start out that way. It didn't. I mean, you go, go back to those same restaurant starters a month before grand opening or even six months before grand opening, and they were full of risk, excited about this endeavor, loving the idea of it, dreaming about it, able to, to have big sacrifices in the moment. But then pain happens. And for a restaurant that looks like people not coming in and ordering food, it means trying to uh, not spend as much on supplies. It means all kinds of things. And then eventually you start, as a leader, building routines and building a landscape where you don't have risk and you don't have pain, and it ends up looking like a restaurant that is just settled, and we've all been in one. But listen, marriages do this too, right? It's a new endeavor. I mean, when you first get married, if you're married, you're marrying your best friend, and you're a lover, and it is this great adventure, and there's a heavy amount of sacrifice on the front end, you'll give up anything for your spouse. You're just so excited about it, but then pain comes, right? Challenges upon challenges, mixed with challenges and wrapped with more challenges. 
And then the pain hurts. And so you start building routines, even as a couple, to avoid the pain, to stop taking risks, to, to just be safe. And it becomes what? Boringly predictable. You don't look like lovers as much as you look like roommates now, partners now. What is it that comes to your mind, the first thing that comes to your mind, when in order to grow, you know it would mean pain, and so you just haven't been willing to do it? Haven't been willing to make the move, to take the risk. It could be anything. It could be a hard conversation you should be having with somebody. It could be a job change. It could be a lifestyle change. But you know in order to change, in order to grow, in order to progress, it's going to require you taking on pain, and you've done the math, and you're like, listen, it's just not worth it. I'm just not going to do it. There is a leadership expert. His name is Samuel Chand. He has written a book called Leadership Pain. It's been a helpful book for me. He says this, there is no growth without change, and there is no change without loss, and there is no loss without pain. You'll grow only to the threshold of your pain. Pain is a part of progress. If I avoid all pain, I'm avoiding growth. I find this to be true. I agree with this phenomenon. When we were just a handful of families in a living room, when we weren't two locations and we weren't what we are now, I found myself doing what people would say, throwing the deep ball. <laughs> In football language, that's a high risk, high reward play. And I found myself excited to do it. I loved it. I loved the deep sacrifice. I loved the risk and the adventure of it all. I was not afraid of the pain. In fact, I packed for it. I was prepared for it. I welcomed it. Now is the problems don't stop coming and the challenges are actually harder now than they were in the original days, I find myself tempted from time to time to just play it safe, to avoid risk, to avoid adventure, to play it safe, to protect. But in all honesty, it's not how, that's not how I function best as a leader. And here's the thing, it's not how you function best either. That is not how you were created. You do not function best playing it safe. You do not function best mitigating sacrifice, mitigating risk. You were created for a very joy-filled, adventurous life. All of us were. And see, this phenomenon is not just true for organizational leaders. It's true for you as well. I mean, you, if, you're, if you're, in fact, a Christian in this room, okay, you probably remember whenever you radically became born again. I mean, I do. I mean, weren't you excited to just tell people you were an accidental evangelist? You just wanted to let people know Jesus did something in my life. I remember when that happened to me. I didn't even know what happened. I mean, I didn't even know what I was saying. I just was a total moron. I mean, I know my theology was all over the place. My gospel was a very broken gospel. I did the best I could. I'm like, I don't know about all this Bible stuff. I just know that God did something real in my heart, and I'm a totally different person now, right? I tackled risk, I loved adventure, and any of the sacrifices that would come with it. Because these are things that I did know, even with all my weird theology. I knew that today was a vapor, and this is not my home, and Jesus is real, and he did something in me. Man, I loved the adventure of those early days. I was even kicked out of a few college classes for standing up 
and refuting the professor whenever I felt like they said something out of bounds. They would occasionally, I don't know what it was, it wasn't this school, but I happened to have a slate of classes all at the same time, and everyone had a rub against the church or Jesus, and they felt like those lectures needed to let everyone know. So they would say something that I felt like crossed a boundary, and then I would stand up, and I would just start barking. I would just start saying stuff, and I didn't even know what I was saying, right? I would say, well, listen, that's not totally true, and I would give a scripture that I don't even think was in the Bible, and, but I knew people weren't going to look it up, so I'd give it the wrong context. Hey, it says in First Timothy, and, and I would just say whatever I wanted to say <laughs> that felt biblical, I, or whatever I got out of my devotional that morning, just because I, I, loved, I loved the joy and the adventure and the risk of telling the story of Jesus to the best of my ability. Of course, they would get upset. They would kick me out of the class. I didn't care. I didn't care. My, my, I, I, my mindset was bring it on and bring it all on. And I didn't care about the sacrifice because in my mind back then to live is Christ and to die is much, much, much better. So think of me what you will. I have a king. I have a hero. I have a lover in Jesus and this is not my home. That was my attitude. Now listen, I still have seasons like this. I feel like I'm in one now. I still have seasons like this, but I would be lying to say that I felt like this all the time because I don't. I'm just like you, just like most people. And as I age, especially, I find myself calcifying towards predictability, safety, security, protection. I find myself bubble wrapping myself so that when I feel pain, just like you feel pain, when challenges are unsolved, just like they are in your life, I just want my evenings undisturbed. I want my risks heavily leveraged. I want my sacrifice to be minimal. And maybe you can be like this too. Maybe you're similar to me. You feel the pains of this world, and so you retreat. It's too scary. You stop risking. You step out of the adventure, and now you're living something that looks like a boring life, a boringly predictable life. Uh, you remember adventure. You remember the risk of it all and that feeling of being full of God, but something has tempered you over time. And now when you look in the mirror, you think, what happened? Is this it? I mean, is this it? Is it just going to be Tuesday for the rest of my life? Is this really it? Is this my life? Listen, I'm excited for our text today. There is some teaching in it for sure, but there's also an open invitation for us to be full of God and therefore full of adventure, full of joy, even though there's a ton of sacrifice and a ton of risk and a ton of pain. All of that can happen at the exact same time, right? So let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. And this is Paul, once again, speaking to a really young church. And we're only going to do two verses today, actually. I know we've covered quite a bit of ground the last two weeks. And this is the word of the Lord for us. It's going to help us see Christ very clearly today. Paul says in verse 12, For just as the body is one, and as many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Okay? Now listen, Paul is transitioning 
from what we've been doing the last two weeks and where he's been listing out all the various ministries and services and gifts, and some of those we're not done talking about yet, right? But now he's transitioning into how we interact with each other when we're using these gifts, how we love each other well with these gifts. And he has to do this because this church is doing something odd. On top of abusing the gifts, he's finding that they're also dispensing I don't know, esteem or respect to certain people based on the kind of gift that they have, right? It's not inconceivable. We actually do this today, right? Some gifts, they just get more attention and honor than other gifts. Personally, I think we live in the day and the age of the teacher. I think the teacher is a gift that everybody clamors to. The teacher is a gift that we all love. We don't see it weird in any way. But there are some gifts that make us nervous, right? And then there's just straight up some gifts we wish just didn't show up. We wish they just weren't a gift at all. So he addresses this and speaks of it through the lens of how we are unified. I love this. He's basically saying in this passage, listen, as much of a variety as there is, there's a bouquet of ministries and services and gifts and on and on and on. I mean, it's endless. But as much variety as there is, you're actually all the same people, baptized by the same Jesus into the same spirit into the same church for the same goal and the same purpose. So he talks about variety, and then it looks like he just homogenizes the whole thing. I love his language here because he's using heavy metaphor. You're catching it probably, how we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit by Jesus and grafted into this beautiful, living, vibrant growing organism called the church, already populated with brothers and sisters in Christ, where Jesus sits at the head of the family table right now, even as we speak. And Paul is doing something even cooler than that, because he's remixing some of John the Baptist into this letter. Okay, some of you are already able to see it. Don't turn there, stay where you're at, but in Mark 1, we'll put this on the screen, Mark 1, verse 7 through 8, you see John the Baptist, and he says this a few decades earlier, After me, he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's be clear. The Holy Spirit doesn't baptize anybody. It's Jesus who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit, much like a pastor or a parent would baptize their kids in the water. We are immersed in the Holy Spirit. We are soaked in the Holy Spirit for a change that will never be undone. We will never have that taken away. And this happens upon salvation, okay? Salvation, now this much is not so controversial, this much. It doesn't really split people. What does split people is when this baptism of the Holy Spirit happens and what happens afterward. Now that splits a ton of people, right? Does this baptism happen after you become a Christian or when you become one? What is it exactly? Is it the same thing as being filled with the Holy Spirit or is it different, right? Why do I need it? Does anyone care? How does one get this thing, this baptism? What does it do? What does it look like in real time? There are a lot of questions, right? And there's a lot of different answers, a lot of different views on this. I'm just gonna pick the big predominant two, There's two classic views on this, and that's all we're going to hit. I've actually spent over a decade living, breathing in each one of these camps, teaching in each one of these camps as well. It's one of the few things I have a little bit of experience in. 
One of these views is called classic Pentecostalism, okay? Now listen, that's an umbrella term. It's a big river with a lot of streams coming off of it. It could be a word of faith church. It could be an assemblies of God church. It could be, I've seen some four-square churches operate under a classic Pentecostal view of the Holy Spirit and the gifts. I've seen Baptist churches do it. I've seen a slew of non-denominational churches do it. There's a lot here. And what is called the baptism of the Spirit underneath this classic Pentecostalism is seen as a secondary experience that happens after salvation. It might be a minute after salvation, it could be 50 years after salvation, but it happens after salvation, all right? And it is accompanied with the gift of tongues as a proof. Okay, now listen, I'm painting with a broad brush. I get it, I get it. There's probably some church off that says, we don't exactly believe it like that. I get it, so this is a broad brush. You're gonna have to bear with me. But this baptism of the Spirit is seen as what allows the Christian to defeat sin and to be empowered for great works of ministry, okay? And they get this from Acts 2, by the way. That's where I'm going to turn now. If you have a Bible, you just turn left for a little bit. But in Acts 2, verse 4, this is a description of the early church and one key day in this early church. And in verse 4, it says this, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? This is a really cool passage right here. This is where the church, by the way, bursts upon the scene. Church is brand new at this moment. It just started. Right? Another cool thing about this passage is that it is actually a reverse babble of sorts. Right? So maybe if the Bible's something new to you or you need a refresher, the Tower of Babel's back in Genesis 11. Noah had already come. The flood had already come. Um, humanity started growing across the globe again. But they all had one language. And they gathered together in one specific place with one language, one goal, one purpose. I mean, when you've got people that all speak the same language and are all on the same page and they've got the same goal and the same purpose, stuff is going to get done. And this was their goal. We're going to build a tower. We're going to build a building of some kind, some structure that's going to go up as high as we possibly can make it for our glory. That was the goal. That was the end game. But God comes down and ruins their nicely laid plans and he does so creatively. How does he do it? He takes the one thing that they shared in their language and he confuses it. So they don't understand each other anymore. They're just confused. I don't know what that looked like. I would love to see what that looked like, right? Like when, when they first realized that they did not have the same language anymore. Regardless, they all had to disperse. They all left their cute little construction project right there in ruins, and they dispersed in different directions. This is how the Bible speaks of it in Genesis 11. You can go read it yourself. But now what God is doing in Pentecost is he's using a miraculous language not to confuse and disperse, but to enchant and collect. He's gathering people with this miraculous language, and he's doing so not so that they would build a structure up to the heavens, but that they would build this organic structure called the church. Not for their glory, but for the glory of God. Your Bible is so cool. Your Bible is so cool. Anyway, rabbit trail. 
Back to the classic Pentecostal logic is, is in this moment in Pentecost, that these disciples were already Christians. And as Christians, they already had the Holy Spirit. So the secondary thing that happened, it has to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is being talked about, the second experience. And so they hold this passage in Acts as something that is binding for people today. It's normative, in other words. It's normative for us today. So in real time, this is what it would look like. And I know because I was there and I did this. In real time, when someone was ready for this baptism of the Holy Spirit, they would look at their life and do a heavy, heavy audit a gutturally honest audit, and they would repent of all of their sins, everything. Anything that looks like they are holding back from God, they are no longer holding it back from God. They would lay down all of their idols, walk away from all of their addictions, and they would yield to whatever God may do in their life, no matter what it costs. Hands are wide open. And they would go to maybe a meeting, maybe it'd be a church gathering, maybe it'd be some smaller meeting. And sometimes, not all times, but sometimes people would lay hands and pray with this person that they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit right there in that moment. And if that person prayed in tongues, then it, then it happened. They were baptized. If you did not pray in tongues, then you must go back, look harder, do something different. So you can already imagine the confusion and the shame that this might bring to a people who really earnestly want the deepest of what God can give, and they feel like they're walking away without it when the rest of the room has it. So therefore, another ramification of classic Pentecostalism is it can build a caste system over time. Because no longer is humanity just two groups of people, those who love and enjoy Jesus and those who don't. Now you've got a third category, which is those who love Jesus a bunch, and they are mature enough to get something that no one else has been able to get. Right? This is what Sam Storms says as he comments on this ramification. He says, the obvious danger here is in dividing the Christian life in such a way that salvation becomes a gift to the sinner, whereas the fullness of the Spirit becomes a reward to the saint. Okay? But let me be careful. I think we should be careful when we talk about classic Pentecostalism. These are not dumb people. They're not heretics. They're not morons. They're not evil. Again, I'm going to paint with a broad brush, but I'm just going to say they also don't want people to feel shame. They don't want that. They don't want people feeling anxious, rejected. They want people to feel the deepest love that God has to give. They want people to feel the deepest pleasure of the Holy Spirit. These are people that are desperate for change in their life and in their family and in their city. Active missionaries walking with a very big expectation that at any moment God is going to break through and do something miraculous right in front of them. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Not at all. Although we as a leadership team and as a church officially do not agree with this classic Pentecostal view, I will say we stand next to them as we worship the same Jesus. Just as Paul says, we are members of the same body. I think that's important for us to remember as we look at this the different views, because at the, at the ripe, wise, old age of 21, I prayed for this baptism of the Spirit several times. And I went through these steps of repenting of everything that I knew was sideways in my heart. Repenting just in case there was stuff that I didn't see, like maybe something happened when I was sleeping and I don't even, God, I'm sorry for stuff I don't even know that I did. Maybe I did some stuff and I'm sorry for that too, you know, anything. I would do anything putting everything down that I thought was getting in the way or had the potential to get in the way, begging God, earnestly 
begging God for, for the biggest manifestation he had to give because I wanted to do great in works of ministry. I wanted to beat sin. I wanted real change. I wanted it at all costs. I wanted it with every fiber of my being. Listen, there is nothing wrong with that posture. That is the posture of revival, by the way, which is why I think a lot of people go back to their seat changed. I think they have revival in their heart. I don't think they've been baptized in the Spirit. I didn't receive a gift of tongues in those moments, but I was changed in those moments. I was changed. Before I talk about how, I want to talk about our position as a church. We believe as Legacy Church that the baptism of the Spirit is simultaneous with salvation. It is not afterward. Therefore, if you are a Christian in this place, you have been fully baptized in the Holy Spirit. We also don't believe that there is a singular gift that everybody gets whenever they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. We don't believe that everybody gets tongues as a proof. This passage that we're looking at today in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 is one of the bigger reasons that we are able to build that theology. This is what it says in verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. When is it that we're baptized into a body? When is it that we join the body of Christ? If not whenever we're saved. It's when we're saved that we do that. That's when we join each other. So this happens upon salvation. It doesn't happen later. It's when you become a Christian at that time that you join the body of Christ as a member. So baptism in the Holy Spirit, that's a metaphor that describes your conversion. Your conversion, right? You are immersed and you are submerged in God forever to enjoy his presence and his power. And there is no caste system. There are no haves and have-nots based on your maturity level. So if you feel like a failure this morning and God just loves you even though you're just a total moron and you mess up all the time, if you feel like that, <laughs> you're in good company. I'm with you. I'm in the same room. That is me. But our position still begs the question, well, then what happened with these folks in Pentecost? Well, what happened in Acts 2? Like I said, I think the church age was born. Special time. I think it's an unrepeatable time. I don't think it's something that just happens all the time. The day before, there was no empowered church. Now there is. And therefore, if it's a special, unrepeatable event, it's not wise to go in there and pluck details out to make it normative for today, to make it binding on you and me today. Therefore, not everyone is going to get tongues. I mean, Paul says as much. Paul says as much. Not everybody gets this. Not everybody gets that. What God is doing in Acts 2 is he is saying in this reverse Babel moment that his mission is to seek and save the lost, and he does throw through his local church. Listen, the most expedient way to see city change and culture change is through the local church. It's through the local church. It's through this and many of this. And God is saying in this moment that his mission to seek and save the lost will happen through his triumphant church, and they are empowered by his triumphant spirit to make disciples of all nations. This is a huge moment in this passage, a huge moment in Acts 2. Yet, we don't have any imperatives anywhere in the Bible that tell us that we have to go get baptized in the Holy Spirit as these folks were. In other words, your Bible doesn't command you to do that. It doesn't say it anywhere. But we are told to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not the same thing. We are told to be filled. Ephesians 5.8, Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine, 
for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And actually, the language there renders out keep on being filled or stay filled or stay consistently filled with the Spirit, I guess is a better way of saying that. So when I went, when I went forward to be baptized in the Holy Spirit as a young man, I believed I was filled by the Spirit that I already had in those moments. And listen, I get it. This sounds like hair splitting, right? Nerd talk. Filling, baptized, who cares? I mean, really, when it comes down to the grit of really everyday life, what is the difference? Here's the difference, right? When you are baptized in the Holy Spirit is when you become a Christian. But there are many moments, many moments, hopefully a bunch, where we experience the Holy Spirit's intense activity, elevated, amplified activity. That's what we would call being full of the Holy Spirit or being filled with the Holy Spirit. And this can happen at different times. It can happen to different degrees, right? But it will leave you feeling empowered. It will leave you feeling bold. It will leave you feeling joyful. It will leave you feeling a certain way no matter what is going on around you. Let's look at a couple. I'm going to put them up on the screen. Again, you can stay where you're at. Acts 13 and Acts 4, we see some cool moments of the church. In Acts 13, they're being chased out of town for preaching the gospel. And it says, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Right? Doesn't seem like an appropriate response to being chased out of town, to being slandered, having a couple rocks thrown at you while you're walking out. But they are filled with joy. Earlier than that, it says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and can continue to speak the word of God with boldness. So listen, think about this. They're living in an adventure, an adventurous, risky lifestyle. And pain is coming, pressure is coming, challenges are coming. They pray for the Holy Spirit, and the result is, is they are bold, they are full of joy. Do we need this filling? I mean, is it really that important that we are filled in the Holy Spirit? Yes. Yes. Listen, you've heard me say the last few weeks, the only way you grow, spiritually grow as a Christian, change as a Christian, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. The only way you see God clearly, see Christ clearly, I'll even say see yourself clearly, is by the Holy Spirit's empowering you to see that, right? Now, you can change without the Holy Spirit. You can always do things without the Holy Spirit. You could read the Bible a bunch without the Holy Spirit. You could give a lot of money without the Holy Spirit. You can go to church a lot and prove your attendance without the Holy Spirit. You can mechanically change without the Holy Spirit. You cannot spiritually change without the Holy Spirit, though. Right? I mean, think about it. You could read the Bible every day. But without the Holy Spirit, you can't see it when the Bible reads you. You can't see it. You can give money to the kingdom without the Holy Spirit. You cannot do so generously, sacrificially, and with joy without the power of the Holy Spirit. can't. Without the Holy Spirit, it is possible to say that you forgive someone. But I think we all know, without the Holy Spirit alive in us, it's impossible to mean it, to really mean it. You can sing songs about Jesus without the Holy Spirit, but your heart cannot sing songs to Jesus without the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled, continually filled, always being filled, consistently being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you can live a life that doesn't do that. I've done that. 
can describe what that looks like as well. It's boringly predictable, as we've seen. Routine rules the day. Adventure, risk, that is moved aside to make room for safety and security. Sacrifice is moved on as well to make room for self-protection. Jesus isn't really anyone that, I mean, just learn about him. It's not someone that you enjoy, right? The Bible is just something you read, a box you check. It's not something you savor or protect. Community just becomes equal parts, I don't know, inconvenience and struggle, so why even bother really, right? Pervasive sins that you've had forever, as long as you can remember, they keep trying to convince you that you will never have victory, and now you believe it. So you start to settle. There's no hunger to grow, and now there's no sadness over the fact that there's no hunger to grow. So maybe you recognize this too. Maybe even today you recognize it. Maybe even today you're bored. Just bored. Because on a long list of things that we desire, the spirit filling us, just simply not at the top of that list, right? And I think I have a theory as to why this happens. This is my theory. I fear, I think that we fear that the Holy Spirit will disrupt our predictable, safe routines and move us into uncomfortable places to do uncomfortable things. We know, we know that the Holy Spirit is going to move us into moments of heavy risk and heavy sacrifice. We fear that if we just open up our hands and say, here's everything, Lord, here's everything, we fear that he'll actually reach in and take some stuff. And here's the thing, that's exactly what he's going to do. He will do all of those things. He will do all of those things. Read the New Testament. Every single time you see the Holy Spirit filling God's people, he is pushing them right or holding them right in the middle of risk, sacrifice, pain, and pressure. They are decreasing so that others are increasing. They're becoming impoverished so that others become wealthy. They are moving upstream, so to speak, right where pain is, right where pain is. But here's the thing. We also see them in the middle of joy and encouragement and adventure. You don't see them bored. You don't see anything predictable. Why? Because this is the shape of the gospel. This is how Jesus walked. He decreased on the cross so that we would increase. He impoverished himself so that we would be wealthy. He sacrificed himself for us because our sacrifices were very inadequate. It was the fullness of the Spirit of God that led Jesus straight to the cross, and it will be the fullness of God that leads us to pick our cross up. And we know this, I think. I think we suddenly know this. We do the math. We do the math. We know that there's pain coming. We look at the pain. We consider it not worth it. Not worth it. Not today. Maybe someday, but not today. We don't want the pain, and therefore we won't change. Because like you saw earlier, you're only going to grow to the threshold of your pain. If you avoid pain, you will avoid growth. And we're allergic to it. We're allergic to decreasing. We're allergic to impoverishing ourselves. We're allergic to taking on challenges. We're allergic to risk. But friends, listen, that is the Jesus-shaped life. This is the life that you were created for. It's the life you were created for. Because it's also a place of adventure and joy. I think this is one reason the Bible says to not be drunk on booze, but instead stay full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you're like me at a cursory reading, you're like, why is he connecting those two things? That doesn't even seem to, I mean, I get it. I'm not mad at you for saying that, Paul, but it doesn't look like, looks like a cheap segue, right? Like, hey, don't get drunk. 
But, let's get back to the Holy Spirit. Be full of the Holy Spirit too, you got it? It sounds like that's what he's doing, but he's not. There actually is a very, very deep connection here. I mean, just consider. When you are full of fatigue and full of pain and full of discouragement and you're bored, booze, or weed, or whatever thing you've got a prescription for, or whatever you want to fill the blank in with, it does provide a sense of escape from risk. It does provide a little bit of a window into security. You feel like you'll be bubble wrapped, and it does promise it will give you joy as well. This is why happy hour is called happy hour. It's not a mystery. Drunkenness promises joy and an escape from sacrifice. Here's the thing, the Holy Spirit does the exact opposite actually delivers on joy and moves us straight into sacrifice and pain. They do the opposite things. This is why we need the Holy Spirit's fullness so bad, because we were meant for so much more than to medicate all of our risk and pain and challenges away. We were meant for so much more than that. And so we have good news. We have good news. Good news is that we've been freed from protecting ourselves. We've been freed from it. In fact, it's whenever we find ourselves decreasing and impoverishing and moving into challenge, it's when we do that that we see others increase most, others become wealthy most, and it benefit others most. And this is, like I said, the shape of the gospel, but it's also where we enjoy God the most. In fact, God is most glorified when we find ourselves enjoying him the most. But I think here's the key struggle, and I understand the struggle. I do. It's hard for us to imagine in our heads. It's hard for us to imagine having joy and sacrifice at the same time. Like you can have one or you can have the other. Maybe you can even have them in the same day, but you can't have them in the same time. It's hard for us to imagine risk and pain over here with boldness and joy at the same. It's hard for us to push them together. But just look at the gospel. And you're going to find that it's not just Jesus hanging on the cross, but it's a sacrificial and a joy-filled Jesus. Does that sound odd? It says this in Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is where we are shown the shape of the gospel. And the fact that the Holy Spirit, when he fills us, maneuvers us and pushes us upstream, upstream towards pain, towards challenge, towards high risk, and towards joy and towards adventure at the same time. It's the shape of the gospel. So how do we do this thing? How do we become filled, right? Because it's a passive operation. We don't fill ourselves, right? So how does this, how does this go down, this whole thing? Now, I'm just going to ask you one question. Where are you convinced being full of God is not worth it? Where, what department is that for you? It could be financial. It could be, it could be a, a bunch of things. But where are you just convinced? You've done the math. It's just not worth it. The pain is too much. Reward is here, but the pain is here. Okay? Where is that for you? If you were to open up your hands... And give God everything that you have, your job, your hobbies, your addictions, hear me, your family, your life, your next breath. I mean, really open up your hands. If you were able to put yourself in that place, what are you most afraid God is going to take? What is that for you? 
What is it that your fear of losing takes over the most? What is it that you value more than God himself? These are all different ways of asking the same question. What is it that you say to the Lord, you could come this far, but you can't come any further, right? Because listen, you cannot, you cannot hold things loosely in your life without being full of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. Do you want God more than anything in your world? What is it that's getting more affection than God in your life, more attention? Because your hesitancy to give God your absolute everything, that is what has you living a boringly predictable life. Right? Now, I can promise you one thing. Being full of the Holy Spirit, it will bring you joy, and it will bring you adventure, and it will bring you pain, and it will bring a lot of risk, and it will bring a lot of discomfort. But when you are full of the Holy Spirit, you won't care. Because this is not your home. This is just a vapor. Right? See, the gospel frees us to a place where we are always yielding, always hungry for adventure, always ready to take risks, always full of faith, ready for pain, ready for sacrifice, does not matter. I think there's just hard for us, it's hard for us to see this sometimes, but there's plenty for us to repent for here. Because here's the hard application. We're all called to lead, all of us. And some of us, in my opinion, are called to lead greatly and in adventurous endeavors. Maybe you're just called to lead yourself right now. It's all you can do just to lead yourself. Maybe you have a family and you're called to lead your small little family unit. Maybe you're leading people that are in pockets that are outside of your family units. Whatever scale of leadership you've been called to lead, you are called to lead. And this is what this means. It means moving uphill when everyone else is filtering downhill. When everyone is building routes and routines of safety and predictable security, you're risking. You're putting stuff out there. You're living an adventure. You're asking God to fill you with the Holy Spirit and to continually fill you. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to taper this part of the service into the next part, which is worship, musical worship, and communion in the back. And just if you're a guest here or you're semi-new here, if you're a Christian and you love Jesus, we just ask you to take the elements back there whenever you see everyone else filtering back there and taking them and then coming back to their seats. You don't have to be a member of Legacy Church to do that. If you're not a Christian, maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're a searcher, maybe you're just thinking about things like this, that's just something we do as a family here. We just ask that you strongly consider your own life. You strongly consider Jesus as Lord. Because those are emblems of the sacrifice back there and the bread and then the juice that came by the leadership of Jesus. He pursued the cross and he did it with joy and it was sacrificial. And both those can be true at the same time. And listen, if you're in here and you do not love Jesus, but you feel the urge to submit all of your treasures at the feet of Jesus, you feel this urge to open up your hands and say, God, you can actually have everything. If you feel a drawing to do that, then that's likely the Holy Spirit working in your life even now. And I just need you to know that the only thing you bring to the bargaining table with God is your own desperate need. That's it. That's all you bring. He brings favor. That's how that transaction works. He gives favor to you totally despite you. Right? This is grace. And my prayer for you is about to be that the Lord actually does this in your life today. 
but I think there's room for all of us to celebrate. Even if you feel angst and sadness today and a, a, a I guess, a sorriness over trying to self-protect and build routines that are predictable and boring, if you feel that, that thing in you that's, that feels gross, you need to know that even that is the beginning work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You couldn't see yourself accurately without that. Even now, you might be being led to ask God to fill you with his spirit. And if you don't have a desire for this, did you know that you can even ask the Lord for that? God, I just don't desire it, but I know I'm supposed to. I know, I know I'm better if I do. I know things are better if I do. I would just ask that you give me a hunger for you. Man, I'm telling you, even the revelation that you want to be hungry for God, but are not, that is also the work of God in your life. You can't see yourself correctly without that. So let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for just this passage. I thank you that you baptized us in the power of your Holy Spirit when you rescued us, that you immersed us in the Holy Spirit whom will never be taken from us, whom we will enjoy the power and the presence of forever. And I thank you that you still fill us today because, Lord, we just need it. I need it for my family. I need it for my neighbors. I need it for myself. I need to be filled with your Holy Spirit for, for works of, of ministry, to put down sin, and just to love you more. And Lord, I know I speak for others in this room when we say, yes, Lord, please fill me with your Holy Spirit and keep me filled. And Lord, I pray for those who are just not there yet. They're just not there yet. They've done the math and they see that there's pain around the corner if they, if they allow you to move them into hard areas and they're just scared of it. They're not ready for it. That's something that they'll think about tomorrow. But Lord, you will just wreck them, that you will show them in a loving way, a graceful way. Lord, that they were created to enjoy you above all things and that is where they will find the deepest peace, the deepest joy, the deepest boldness. Lord, we pray that we would never be a church that is satisfied living a boringly predictable life. Lord, keep us always on the hard edge of risk and on the hard edge of adventure. And yes, always on the hard edge of sacrifice and even the pain that comes with it. Lord, that we would be a vibrant people with vibrant families. Lord, help us, even show us in our lives what it is that when we open up our hands, they're not totally open. Some things we're protecting. Lord, there are some things that we give more affection than we give you. Things that we protect. Things that we kind of hoard. That we really wish you wouldn't mess with. Lord, show us what it is that we are putting between you and us. And give us a heart of revival. A heart of revival. Lord, we love you and we thank you. You're so sweet to us and you're so kind. You're so kind to us. And we just pray that you would do something very real in this place and very real in our hearts today. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.